Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. They've been helping the Navy submariners and divers for 75 years. So just what is the Naval Submarine Medical Research Laboratory at the sub-base in New London? Connecticut East this week exclusively finds out. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. They're celebrating 75 years of research and innovation this year, yet they're probably one of the least well-known organizations outside of the U.S. military. We're talking about the Naval Submarine Medical Research Laboratory, or NSMRL, based at Subbase New London. And Connecticut East this week exclusively sat down with some of the scientists at the laboratory to talk about their work and how it's also impacted lives beyond just the U.S. military. So joining me on Connecticut East is Captain Catherine Shope. Welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, Dr. David Fothergill, welcome. Good afternoon. And Louis DeFelice. Good afternoon. Thank you for having us. Welcome to you all. So we are at the Naval Submarine Medical Research Laboratory at the submarine base in New London. Captain Shobe, what exactly is this organization? Because you're celebrating 75 years this year. That's correct. The Naval Submarine Medical Research Laboratory, or NSMRL as we call it, has been here on the submarine base New London since the early 1940s. And we were officially established as a command on June 25th, 1946. So this year, in 2021, on June 30th, we'll be celebrating our 75th anniversary. Since our inception, we have served the submarine force and the diving communities, and we continue to this day to support those two undersea communities. So tell us a little bit about some of the work, Captain, that goes on here, because it's groundbreaking stuff. I don't think that's hyperbole by any stretch of the imagination. And of course, you know, it's been going on for 75 years as well. Correct. I'd like to take this opportunity to talk about one of our longer research lines, and that's looking at the work rest cycles on submarines. Beginning with the, the nuclear-powered submarines, they operate on an 18-hour day, and as, as you may know, or your audience may know, is that the body works on a 24-hour circadian rhythm day. So the 18-hour day was in conflict with the way our bodies naturally operated. So in the late 70s, early 80s, the command, NSML, started conducting research to demonstrate the effects of this 18-hour day on the body's physiology and cognitive performance of submariners. And we looked at the quality of sleep, the quantity of sleep, We started with some basic research studies in a laboratory, a simulated submarine environment, and progressed to doing studies on deployed submarines. And then ultimately, as this information and data accumulated, the submarine force decided to switch to a 24-hour day in 2014 based on the accumulation of our results demonstrate that working on a 24-hour day is better than an 18-hour day. We're going to look a little bit more into some of the other stuff that you do. I just want to introduce uh, David again. David, you're the science director here. Tell us, uh, you know, what does your day involve and what are some of the projects that you're working on? 
Well, our primary mission here really is to sustain the readiness and superiority of our undersea warriors through innovative health and performance research. So our PIs here and myself, uh, we, we try and tackle the big questions of what is impacting our sailors and our divers' performance. And then how can we actually help them uh, perform that mission? So I would say that we have uh, quite a, a range of different research projects uh, out there that um, our PIs are, are concerned with. We broadly have about nine, I would say, broad areas or programs. These are split into undersea warfighter health and performance, uh, psychological fitness and resilience, human systems integration, submarine atmosphere monitoring, bioeffects of underwater sound and blast, hearing conservation, diving and hyperbaric research, as well as looking at things like disabled submarines, how we can keep them alive and survive and wait for rescue, as well as undersea health and epidemiology research. So all our PIs are engaged in these type of activities, designing experiments, conducting experiments, and providing advice to the fleet. You've used the word PI just for the sake oh, of listeners. What's a PI? That is a principal investigator, the person whose primary responsibility it is to design these experiments, conduct them, uh, and provide the guidance to the fleet. Excellent. Thank With you. the support of everybody else, the contractors, as well as the military uh, assistants, as well as our staff on hand. And just roughly, I mean, how many staff are involved here at, at the facility? We have approximately about 80 people on staff. Uh, they're split roughly about a third are military, a third are um, civil servants, and a third are contractors. Lewis, I want to bring you in at this point. You are the supervisor for diving and hyperbaric departments. Many people will have heard of a hyperbaric department or a hyperbaric chamber, I should say. But tell us a little bit more about the work that you do, because there's so much more to just locking somebody away in us like a pressurized tube, isn't there? Uh, yes, Brian. Like Dr. Fothergill said, the diving and hyperbaric research that's conducted here at NSMRL, we try to provide increased diver safety and undersea solutions to diving and pressurized environments like submarines. So our facility consists of two double lock recompression chambers. Uh, We've got diving capabilities that are surface supplied with a a force-fed mask, Uh, scuba capabilities. We have a dive boat that we take out in the Long Island Sound, and a a test pool that's here at the facility, a 9,000-gallon indoor test pool where we can conduct some of our more controlled research. We said that the facility is celebrating 75 years this year, but I think it's once been said that we know more about space than we do actually about, you know, parts of our own planet and specifically under the oceans. What are you still learning? Absolutely. Well, what's fascinating and and really special here about NSMRL is Dr. George Bond that was an undersea medical officer, a commanding officer here at NSMRL in the late 50s and early 60s, uh, had the theory to... Where, where humans could live and work undersea under great pressures for unlimited uh, time frames, and that was his saturation diving theory. And Dr. Bond's theory was, was personnel pressurized, exposed to pressures for long enough, their tissues would become saturated uh, with the depth and the pressures that they were at, and they could, at that time, uh, work undersea at great lengths and decompress only once, and to come out and therefore mitigate some of the problems associated with the bends and and diving decompression. So Dr. Bond uh, 
did a lot of theoretical work and, and some animal testing and then worked into human phase. And that all uh, happened right here in Groton, Connecticut. And, and he proved that humans could live and work in the saturated environment in 1964. And, and then that transitioned into the open ocean with the Sea Lab projects. We know that when people go into space that zero-G creates its own sort of like problems for, for humans and also their physiology, etc. I mean, what are some of the things that, you know, have been learnt, you know, from usage of things like the, a hyperbaric chamber? So living under those conditions, the atmosphere is completely different. Uh, the deeper you go, the, uh, the partial pressure of oxygen is increased, but the actual percent of that oxygen is decreased, and the other gases put in there to, to kind of take up some of the other inert gases, the nitrogen is replaced with helium, and so it becomes a thinner environment, but a more dense environment. That gas in the uh, hyperbaric environment, the helium, is a very uh, thin molecule and robs your, your body of temperature, of core temperature, kind of from the inside out. And so the temperature could be in the high 80s, even 90 degrees, and the diving occupants are still kind of cold. And that's from that thin gas, your voice, of course, and the communications. It's very difficult on that thin gas, that helium, to sound like Donald Duck. And um, we've made great strides with communication systems and then that uh, environmental conditioning system under those circumstances. What's kind of neat, if you drop a piece of paper from height of about your head, that paper flutters to the bottom very, very slowly because of the density of the gas that's in there. It's something that you don't really think of, but in that environment at 1,000 feet or 800 feet, um, it's really quite different. So some of the problems that astronauts have are very similar to those that divers have, particularly if they have to do extra vehicle activity. That's where they jump into a spacesuit. They go from uh, whatever cabin pressure they are at, which is usually one atmosphere inside the actual space capsule itself, to a less than one atmosphere, which means that they have to decompress before they actually get out into space while they're in that suit. So when they decompress, they have very similar issues to divers decompressing, where they can get the bends. And and as such, we can test and evaluate uh, schedules to do effective decompression profiles so that they can actually decompress safely without hurting themselves. So that's a corollary in the sense that we can actually do that test evaluation in our chambers and uh, come out with uh, schedules that will be safe to actually do these either spacewalks or in the case of a diver, uh, decompress from depth. Yeah, because we were talking before uh, we started doing the, the podcast recording and during a tour that you were saying that it actually it takes longer to decompress, I think, from a 1,000 feet than it is actually to, to get to the moon. Uh, that's correct. It, it takes several days to come back from the moon, and master diver can go into the saturation diving uh, decompression tables that it takes to go uh, back from a 1,000 feet. Generally speaking, Brian, it takes a, a, a day of decompression or off gassing uh, for every 100 foot that the subject is saturated. So a 1,000 foot saturation dive would take, and it's, as you get closer to the surface, around 50 feet, you add some more time. So it's kind of, we say, plus one at the, at the surface. So a 1,000 foot saturation dive would take 11 days to reach surface or to come out of that saturated environment. So it's, it's quite a bit of payback on the decompression time physiologically that's owed from living in those pressures. Catherine, I want to get back to you as well. And, and, I mean, all of the research that's carried out here, and we've just spoken, we've just touched the iceberg, the tip of the iceberg, as it were. But, I mean, 
a lot of this research when it was in its infancy, some of it was guesswork back then. And of course, you know, you're now reaping the rewards of years and years of, you know, data coming in. But like we said, there's still a lot to learn, though. Yes, that's absolutely true. You mentioned some of the initial work we did. We were sort of guessing, or we had, a, a, I guess, an educated guess. And one example of that I'd like to highlight is in the early 1950s, when the Navy decided to build nuclear-powered submarines, it was the first time that submarine sailors could be contained within a submarine for an indefinite amount of time before that submarines would have to surface to recirculate air and charge the batteries. But now with nuclear power, they, could, they didn't have to come up to the surface. And the primary concern then was carbon dioxide levels would probably accumulate in, in the submarine. So before then, we had some laboratory research to show which amount of carbon dioxide humans could withstand, but had not been tested for an extended period of time, and such as on a submarine. So the, the lab, the command, conducted a study here in Groton called Operation Hideout, when 23 sailors were contained in a submarine here, Pierside. They didn't submerge, and the atmosphere was not pressurized. But the carbon dioxide levels were brought up to the level we expected them to be. And the result of those 60 days, in combination with a new atmospheric scrubber that was on board, demonstrated that humans could withstand that amount of time, both physiologically and without any uh, cognitive impairments. So that's an example of the lab taking some basic research with humans and both animals and then trying to translate it into a real applied solution for the, for the Navy submarine force. One of the other things we often think about, you know, when it comes to submarines is sound. And, you know, we watch all these movies on television and, you know, sound travels and they have to be quiet and all this sort of stuff. But, I mean, sound is a big issue. I mean, you know, so talk to us a little bit about some of these projects that you do that sort of like look into how sound affects sailors. The way I think about your question is not necessarily how the sound would, would impact sailors on a submarine, but how sailors interpret and process the sounds that they hear through the sonar systems, narrow band, broadband. And the lab does have a history of doing sound processing, auditory processing research for the submarine force. In fact, one of the more recent instances of us taking that expertise is evaluating headsets for sonar operators to use on submarines, new classes of submarines. And it's a great opportunity to use our on-site subject matter expertise coupled with the submarine subject matter experts on the base, meaning uh, experienced sonar technicians, sonar operators, and getting their input evaluating about 10 to 20 different commercial off-the-shelf headsets to, to be put on the next class of submarines to maximize their hearing capacity. So I would say sound exposures are more of a, a potential issue for our undersea warfighters um, uh, working either uh, with very noisy tools or maybe potentially exposed to loud sounds underwater. So we have a team here that is subject matter experts for the Navy on providing guidance to the Navy on how much sound is safe. And we are continuously up updating that guidance with performing new experiments to find out uh, where that safety line is. For example, exposures in sound underwater, we, we are the, one of the first labs to actually discover that humans can actually hear in the ultrasound range underwater. Normally our in-air hearing is between 20 hertz 
and, and 20 kilohertz. Uh, but underwater, we, we, we were finding that divers can hear up to 100 kilohertz. So uh, we were uh, discovering new mechanisms of hearing and providing new guidance to uh, expose to some of the uh, sounds that can be generated by sonar or other loud types of equipment that they use at these higher frequency ranges. Talk to us a little bit as well about you know some of the the other sort of like important projects that that you've got involved in because as an organisation you're probably outside of the navy not particularly well known but you've actually as I said done some amazing groundbreaking and continue to do some groundbreaking work I mean Lewis is there anything in particular that comes to mind that you know people wouldn't know about but has been you know something that was created or discovered here that really has changed things dramatically for either divers or or sailors. That saturation diving theory that was uh, developed and and basically that capability given to the world, military and the commercial industry, all of that stemmed from research and work done right here at NSMRL. Early dive tables, the decompression tables that we use in the military today, a lot of that early work was done here at NSMRL and further refined into the tables that we're using today. Dr. Fothergill and some of his team not too long ago worked to refine them to actually the tables that we use today. Also, the oxygen and the CO2 toxicity limits allowable to humans in those pressurized atmospheric spots, all of that was developed here. And like you had said, some of these limits and, and things that we take for granted, Captain Schilb was talking about the well, how humans live in, in submarines for, for months at a time, opposed to when they were diesel boats and came up and and would snorkel and recirculate. We kind of take that for granted that we can just live in those environments. But in the 50s, we didn't know that. And in the 60s, the, the depths that we're going to in the, in the water, whether it's diving or with submarines and the capabilities of, of duration in these machines that we do take for granted today, we had no idea we could do. But NSMRL had a big hand in developing all of those capabilities. I would say some of our, our most notable accomplishments, especially in the early days of NS Morale, uh, was the development of the first standardized color vision test for military personnel in World War II. This was named after the actual NSML scientist. It's the Farnsworth Lantern Test. Uh, secondly, we, uh, we were instrumental in providing some of the basic research to show that the international color orange for optimized visibility during air-sea rescues was the best color to, to wear to be seen and picked up. Uh, so all of that orange that we still wear today and rely on came from you guys? We were a part of that uh, particular research program that, that showed that benefit of using that particular color. Which seems a small thing, but of course it's huge. Sure, it saves lives. And not many people yeah. would know it came from this sleepy little base right here in Groton, Connecticut. Right. What other stuff, David? Well, more recently, NSMRL researchers have uh, provided the foundation on, on work sleep schedules, particularly on board submarines, and how the benefits of adopting a 24-hour based watch schedule outweighed the traditional 18-hour watch schedule that only up until recently was uh, the, the standard watch schedule aboard submarines. And so now the Navy, I think, within uh, about four or five years ago, did change and adopt their sleep work schedules to a 24-hour base watch schedule to help maintain uh, natural circadian rhythms and submariners and improve their performance and sleep quality. Lots of things that, as we've said, that you do, and again, we've only really just touched on on a few of them. I just want to like round out the the interview with the three of you and just ask you each a personal question. So, 
Catherine, I'm going to start with you. Why do you do it and what do you get out of it? I really appreciate that question. I've I guess as we celebrate and we plan for our 75th anniversary, it does give us time to reflect on the mission here and if other staff members are like me and reflect on why we chose our different professions. I, When I was in graduate school studying to get my PhD in psychology, I thought I would become an academic professor doing some basic research in the lab and just through happenstance found job advertisement to be a Navy research psychologist, active duty research psychologist. And I went with it for some reason. And now over 20 years later, I believe it was one of the better decisions. And now I'm able to help support, uh, take some of my technical expertise and apply it to be of a service to the, the Navy sailors and other military members, as Dr. Father Gill mentioned earlier, improving the lives and safety and welfare of our military members. And David, for you, a slightly different question. What do people think about the work that you do? Because it is unusual, but absolutely essential work. So what do they say when you explain to them, this is what I do? Well, I think they're very excited and uh, they're glad to hear that we're helping our servicemen, particularly our undersea warfighters. We are a specialist laboratory. Obviously, we are focused on submariners and divers. And they they get very excited to hear about some of the... uh, kind of adventurous type of research that we do, which is, you know, sometimes, you know, fairly risky. We do it safely here, and we have a great staff that uh, uh, is supporting not only the Anastromel mission, but the submarine and diving mission. Yeah, I mean, that's the point to just hammer home, isn't it, that it is all done so incredibly safely here that you're able to do it with absolute safety because it is a perilous world that you're dealing with. And, uh, I mean, you know, safety is, I'm guessing, the number one mantra here. Oh, absolutely. And I just want to finish off with, uh, with Lewis as well. You are a retired master diver. So why did you want to get involved in this work? I was very, very thankful, become a part of the NSMRL team. The history that's here with the diving capabilities, the, the, the fact that NSMRL gave the world saturation diving, and now today to, to continue that increased diver safety and undersea uh, warfighter, the, the performance and, and capabilities and, and the safety enhancement that we get to do here every day. There's still a lot to learn in these do- domains, and uh, I'm thrilled to continue to serve in that capacity to, to help the Navy and the nation. Well, it's been an absolute privilege uh, being able to tour the facility here. It is incredible. The small amount that I've just seen today is just absolutely eye-opening. And uh, I'm sure the people listening to this will be equally surprised to learn that this amazing work, you know, has carried on and also for 75 years. But I'll say to Captain Catherine Schaub, to Dr. David Fothergill and to Louis de Felice of the Naval Submarine Medical Research Laboratory, thank you ever so much uh, for the interview and thank you all for your continuing service for what you do every day for the divers and also the submariners of the United States Navy and uh, I'm sure navies around the world as well. Great, appreciate that. Thank you, Brian. And you can find out more about the work of NSMRL by visiting their website. Simply search for Naval Submarine Medical Research Laboratory using any internet search engine. And you can also see their work at a new year-long exhibition about the laboratory at the Submarine Force Museum in Groton. Great weather means it's time for kids to go out and play. But kids aren't the only ones outdoors. Ticks that spread Lyme disease and other infections are also active in the spring and summer. CDC reminds you and your children to wear insect repellent, bathe or shower as soon as possible after coming indoors, and check for ticks daily. 
If you've been bitten by a tick and developed fever, rash, or fatigue, seek medical care. To learn more, visit www.cdc.gov Lyme. Got stumps? Then call Green Valley Tree LLC and let us remove them for you. Our stump grinder is quick and efficient, leaving your property stump-free in no time. Our stump grinding services are available for homeowners, contractors, and municipalities alike. Call us for a quote at 860-234-4041. And find out about our other services at our website, greenvalleytreeworks.com. We're family-owned and fully licensed. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making the headlines in the region recently. And the fallout continues in New London after an explosive audio tape secretly recorded surfaced in the city of the former chief of police disparaging the city and its mayor at times using profane language. At a recent city council meeting, several members of the public expressed their unhappiness about the situation, asking for the mayor and city councillors to clarify their positions as to when they were made aware of the tape. Curtis Goodwin is a new London city councillor and says he wasn't aware of the tape until recently and has yet to hear it. But having read a transcript of the tape, it raises a lot of unanswered questions. So when you have your chief of police, you know, making disparaging comments about the city, it warrants questions of how long did he have these comments or hiring practices missed or not up to par with the standards of the code of exes that we would stand by as a city of New London. So there's just so many different things that I want to engage in, in terms of a dialogue with the administration and also our new police chief to make sure these things never happen again. Jean Jordan is the president of the New London chapter of the NAACP. She knew the former police chief and said she was shocked when the audio tape was brought to her. I think what really did it was the comments about the city. And this is the city who I feel really embraced him. And I think that for a lot of people in the city and a lot of people who I've spoken to, that right there is what they're having trouble with. Peter Reichart was chief of New London Police for four years and in late May abruptly resigned his position just a month from the end of his current contract after being confronted by the mayor with the audio tape. The story about the tape appeared in the Dane newspaper just one day after Reichard's contract officially ended with the city at the end of June. Around 30,000 acres of forest in the northwest of Connecticut has been devastated by the gypsy moth so far. That's according to a new report from the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. Dr Kirby Stafford is with the station and says people living in the area with trees in their backyards will need to act if they don't want to lose them. If they've got high-value trees that were defoliated this year, to think about perhaps having an arborist on tap to be able to treat the trees next year. If you catch the caterpillars while they're very young, you can use Bacillus thuringiensis or BT. That's a biological uh, control. After that, you'll have to rely on more traditional ornamental pesticides. Gypsy moth previously devastated over a million acres of eastern Connecticut forests from 2015 due to drought conditions, finally ending with widespread gypsy moth fungus activity in 2018, killing off the pests. The Goodspeed Opera House in East Haddam has received a major federal grant under the Shuttered Venue Operators Grant Program, formerly known as the Save Our Stages Act. The theatre has received a grant of just under $2.1 million. Donna Lynn Hilton is the artistic director at Goodspeed and says it goes a long way to helping them recoup their losses since they were forced to close. Goodspeed Musical shuttered live performance operations on May 15, 2020. Over the next two months, we were forced to furlough or lay off 68% of our staff. And with the exception of limited outdoor Goodspeed by the River series programming, we have been completely closed to live performance since March of 2020. 
the economic result of that shutdown is that Goodspeed has to date lost over 11 million in ticket sales and contributed revenue. David Bird is the new managing director of Goodspeed and says they're now looking forward to being able to reopen the doors later this year. We are now able to move forward with plans and to take our first big step on this very long road to recovery. You see just far, not far away our tent on our uh, parking lot. We are producing programs under the tent throughout August as we gear up for opening a grand reopening of this opera house for a grand night for singing on September 24th. That's going to be a huge day for Goodspeed Musicals. The program includes over $16 billion in grants to shuttered venues across the U.S. and is being administered by the U.S. Small Business Administration. In the Connecticut Examiner this week, a proposed change in how the state distributes federal subsidies for low-income housing could limit investment in some eastern Connecticut towns. Democratic lawmakers are warning and reshape established patterns of development for others like Stonington and East Lyme. The Connecticut Housing Finance Authority, which oversees and distributes incentive programs to develop low-income and affordable housing, has proposed changing its opportunity map to reflect census tracts rather than municipal-level data to determine eligibility for funding. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at connecticut-east.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week, where you can also listen to the show again on demand. And please like, follow and share on your social media platforms too. I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Thank you for listening.